0: Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkisian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This is All in a Day's Work. I'm Haley Garofalo, and I'm really excited to chat with today's guest, Hector Pardo Hernandez, who is a consultant guideline methodologist at the World Health Organization in the Nutrition, Food, and Safety Department. Hector, it's great to talk to you today. Can you start by giving us a brief overview of what you studied at NYU and what your career trajectory has looked like since you graduated?
2: Well, I first want to thank you for your kind invitation to join this podcast. I went to NYU in 2005 for my master's in public health uh, with a concentration in international health. Uh, After that, I worked for the New York City Department of Health as a contract manager in HIV prevention. After that, I moved to Spain, to Barcelona, where I got my PhD in public health with an emphasis on research methods. And then I worked for the Cochrane Collaboration for eight years well, I was getting my PhD while also working with the Copen Collaboration, and then after that, I joined the WHO.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. So, like a lot of NYU students, I know while you were in school here, you were an international student, and I would love to learn more about how did that influence the job search process when you were looking? Were you doing a multinational search, or what did that look like for you at the time?
2: When I was at NYU in 2007, after I finished my master's degree As a uh, requirement for graduation, I had to complete a rotation. And for me, being an international student, that rotation had to be paid. And I was fortunate enough to find uh, a paid internship in the Bronx District Public Health Office at the time. And then while I was doing that, I was looking for for jobs. I had to make sure that they sponsored my uh, working visa because at the time I was on a student's visa. So many of my professors and colleagues at NYU And also the people I was working for were kind enough to send me in the right direction. And after sending a few applications and about two months, I was able to find the job where I ended up working. At the time, I, I don't know how the legislation is right now, but at the time I had six months to be able to work through my student's visa. During those six months, I informed my employer of the need of a working visa, and they were very kind, helpful, and they did process my visa at the time. If they hadn't done that for me, I would have had to move to another place. So being an international student definitely played a heavy role on my choices at the time.
1: You did eventually end up leaving the U.S. again. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted that decision and how it was readjusting to a work culture outside of the U.S.?
2: When I, after I finished my studies at NYU, I was looking for a job in New York City. I got married. My wife is from Spain, from Catalonia. And she also had a job. She also had a working visa. So we plan to stay for the near future at the time. Around 2009, we started considering moving to Spain because there were good job prospects for her. I was able to get my uh, residency, which eventually led to citizenship in Europe. And then once we were able to sort all that out, I started looking for, for jobs in, in Barcelona and in the European area. The first thing I had to do was adjust my search strategy, I believe that in the U.S., one is very aggressive when it comes to searching for jobs, because we want to show our achievements via ways that can be measured. We do enter in our resumes a lot of how ma- amount of money that we have managed, the amount of publications that we have, and so forth. So very measurable. That's very important for looking for jobs in Europe. But I think it's also important that you show that you can be a part of the team, that you can contribute as much as you can learn, and that you are not going to come to the position believing that you are better than others and that because of your experience, you are going to kind of like take over the entire organization. I think this kind of ambition is is very much appreciated in a candidate in, in, in the U.S. because they want to get those go-getters and those top achievers. And over here, they do too. But there is an emphasis on finding a team member. i finding somebody who's going to work well with the team. And that took some time for me to understand. I believe that after my first interviews, I left feeling that I had spoken too much. And some of the questions that I was getting, instead of focusing on my achievements, I focused more on how I believed I was going to fit in the, the team. And, and that made me understand that I had to make some adjustments. And I did, and eventually I found jobs, and eventually I understood. I believe that when a candidate is so aggressive and ambitious, it, gives, it may, may end up giving the feeling or the impression that the person is going to move the first chance this person gets once a, a new opportunity pops up. Retention is important here. You want to make sure that a new employer comes. You train the employer and you keep him or her for some time. And therefore, I think I, I, think I had to, to keep that in mind when I was looking for jobs so that they will see that even though I was ambitious and a go-getter, I was also reliable to work with the rest of the team and to stay.
1: That's really helpful. I think that's some great advice. What additional advice would you give to students who are interested in applying to jobs internationally? Is there one thing in particular that you think really stands out to you when you're looking at candidates?
2: You need to follow the advice that we get at NYU on how to find a job because it it is really valuable. It is spot on how to write a resume that makes sense, that conveys a message and how to prepare for an interview and how to approach people. When I review applications of candidates for positions that we open up at WHO and before in Cochrane, I always look for, for resumes and letters that make sense, that are free of errors and of people who understand the work that we do and the job that they're applying for. If that is not there to begin with, I doubt the person is going to do a good job. And I know it's unfair because maybe, right, the person just doesn't have knowledge on how to write a correct resume, or maybe the person hasn't had the time to to, to write a powerful cover letter. But when you get so many applications, you need to use some sort of test to select some candidates. Uh, The second piece of advice that I will give them is, Think outside the box. When I was in the U.S., I worked in HIV prevention at the New York City Department of Health. And when I came to Spain, Spain and Catalonia, they have universal health care coverage. And all services are available free of cost to people with HIV. So the kind of work that I was doing in the U.S., I didn't have a niche here. My wife is a counselor, and and she did find some some work at the beginning, providing counseling to HIV-positive people. But this was outside the system. This was through NGOs. So I had to reinvent myself, and I ended up working on methods, systematic reviews and guideline uh, development, clinical guideline development. That had never crossed my mind, and I had to read that myself. And now I am in love with my job. I love what I do. Just bear in mind that there may be something out there that is something that you hadn't thought of. The third piece of advice I will give you is to understand that many times employers are indeed looking for people who have the qualifications that they put on those on those calls for applicants, they are also looking for people that they can train. That means that don't be shy about applying to a job where you may not have all the, all the requirements. Make sure you mention that in your resume in a positive way, so they know that you are aware of your limitations and that you are open to gaining them. And I think employers appreciate that. I I have a person who is working for me now, and this person was open about uh, her shortcomings in this case. And and I am happy to say that she has gone beyond our expectations and that she's going to stay working with us.
0: We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Miriam Miller. Here at NYU, there are a lot of really great resources to support international students as they go through the job search. So some of the ones that I often recommend for people are going global, specifically for people who are looking to do a little bit of research about H-1Bs or for people who are thinking about doing more of a global job search and want to understand what the process looks like in other countries. They also have a really terrific city jobs guide that helps you better understand how to look for jobs in different cities around the U.S., Another great one I recommend to people is the Violet Network. So the Violet Network is an NYU specific networking platform, and that really allows people to connect to one another, with other students, with alumni, across a variety of fields all over the world. So that's a really wonderful one to use. And then more internally within NYU, we also have the Office of Global Services. They are very much the resource at NYU for anything related to immigration and visa questions. And then there's also the NYU International Student Center. And so that's a great hub for events and programs that foster meaningful connections among all global thinkers and help students from around the world make the most of their NYU experience. And now, back to the episode.
1: Switching gears a little bit back to you and your experience, I know that you went through a PhD program, which of course is really demanding, but you also did that while supporting a family. So I would love to hear more about how you managed the balance between the demands of your program and your responsibilities as a parent and a partner.
2: Yes, my my wife and I married in 2006 in the U.S. and she, she had a master's in counseling and she wanted to get a PhD. She always did, and she looked for opportunities to do so in the U.S., but because of different reasons, uh, we didn't, and we ended up moving to Barcelona in 2010, and I always encouraged her to do so, and I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that I was interested in, but when I started work, working in Cochrane, a new contract opened up. They were going to hire me, but this contract also involved the possibility of getting a PhD, and my mentors and my boss at the time encouraged me to do so, and I ended up in a PhD program, and through that process, my wife got encouraged too. She had been doing some research, and we both signed up in 2012. A month later, she got pregnant, uh, which was also great news. But we found ourselves wondering how we were going to get everything done. So that's the background. From 2012 to 2014, my progress was very slow, of course, because we had a a baby, and then another one on the way. Through that time, my wife asked for a maternity leave from her PhD program. She really wanted to, to be there for our babies. She was gracious enough, and we agreed this uh, as a couple and as a family, that I would pursue aggressively my PhD and that she will wait. I graduated in 2017, so it took me five years, five very long years. I slept very little. I had no idea that a human being could remain alive. We touch a few hours of sleep. And then the day I graduated, the day I defended my thesis, as you say, uh, in, the, in the evening, uh, I told my wife, now it's your turn. Call it a miracle or not, that same evening, she got a notification via email that the first paper of her PhD was accepted for publication. And this is where I like to highlight the fact that we need to be supportive of our partners, our spouses, our significant others, and that means sacrifices. And at this point, I like to talk to my fellow men out there, right? It is easy to say that we support women's rights, equal pay, but it is most important to take action. At the time, after I finished my PhD, job opportunities started popping up that will have required me to take more hours of work and therefore not supporting my wife getting her PhD. We discussed this and we agreed that we were not going to pursue that we were going to remain the job that I had at the time so that she could continue finishing her PhD and so that I wouldn't have to learn a new job right, and all the demands of a, of a new position. Was it hard for me? Yes. But was it fair? Yes. It was the right decision and I will do it again because that allowed her to discharge some of the responsibilities of the day-to-day on me, of like picking up the girls, uh, staying at home when one of them was sick and so forth. She had to change uh, her entire PhD because too much time had passed so she had to start over because some of the work that she had done had been done already right through those times. And, and, and it took her three years to finalize right from the starting point of that paper that was published. And somehow we made it in one piece. And we are going to complete 15 years of marriage this month of August. And our girls are eight and six. And we survived.
1: Wow, that's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and talking about your personal experiences and really opening up to our audience. You currently work for the World Health Organization. Can you talk about how you managed to land that position and what sorts of projects you started taking on once you started?
2: Like I mentioned before, once I finished my PhD, some new opportunities started popping up, but I had a desire of working with WHO. So I sent many applications, but they failed. And that's a word of encouragement that I have for people applying for WHO. A lot of people apply for every position and I know that now because I, we have opened some positions in our unit and I know we get a lot of applications. And don't be discouraged. It just means that you are not the right fit. In any case, uh, I would like to highlight the fact that WHO is not just headquarters in Geneva. Main offices in Copenhagen, but there are satellite offices, one of them in Barcelona, which is where I live. Having an office in WHO Barcelona inspired me to, to pursue the option of working in WHO. But I, I was never called back from the WHO office in Barcelona but I was lucky enough to get a job offer for the office in Almaty, Kazakhstan, which is one of the former Soviet countries that is part of WHO Europe. The topic that I was working on was something that I had never worked on. That was long-term care. And they they hired me specifically because they wanted somebody with my methods background. I did highlight the fact that I didn't have real experience in long-term care. And they say that they could provide that knowledge and that they needed me to provide the methods, right? The methods expertise. It was an excellent, fantastic team of people. I learned a lot from them, uh, and, I made a, and I made a contribution that I am proud of and that they were very happy about. People started noticing my work, and next thing you know, even though I wasn't looking for a new position, I was invited by to join a team in headquarters in Geneva. Uh, it, was a, it was a very tempting uh, opportunity doing the kind of work that I was doing before when I was in Cochrane, when I was doing my PhD. So it was a painful decision, but I say yes to this new team. And that's the kind of work that I've been doing for the past uh, year now.
1: You were working at the WHO when COVID hit in early 2020. What did that mean for your work and responsibilities? Are there major ways in which COVID really changed the work that you do?
2: Yes, it definitely had an impact. I joined my new team in May 2020, so it was right through the pandemic, and I know that the idea that they had for me was that I would travel often to Geneva, but of course the pandemic made that impossible. My supervisors had to readjust their approach and what we had in mind, and then of course we all got that exhaustion and being saturated by being online all the time. Also, we had our two little daughters at home And they were being homeschooled, right, because all kids in Barcelona were and in Europe, for that matter. So we had to combine teaching them whatever we had to teach them uh, because this school required with work. And I also took extra work to do some COVID work. Because I should have mentioned before that the work that I'm doing in the Nutrition and Food Safety Department is on obesity management in children and adolescents. But I have taken additional responsibilities on COVID-19. So that, that started also at the time. And it was hard to combine everything and then as the pandemic has progressed, we always had the hope uh, that it's going to get better. And it has, of course, but not to the point where we can once again travel and get together in Geneva. So we had a major meeting for our guideline because we we're developing a guideline for t- management of childhood obesity. And this guideline had to be on uh, online. Once again, it was difficult. It was challenging. The guideline development group was incredibly helpful and flexible. They made things very easy for us. Yes, we'll have preferred a thousand times to do it in person, but it was, of course, impossible. So, so we need to hang in there until this is over.
1: So I know you mentioned a lot of the need for flexibility and adjusting to, you know, the new needs of the environments you're in. What advice would you give to students or alums who are feeling overwhelmed by all the choices that they'll have to make in their professional lives? Maybe people who can see themselves doing a lot of different things professionally and aren't really sure how to narrow their search
2: I will say, you are not alone, and that feeling is never going to go away. You always see so many amazing areas of research and areas of work, and you just cannot cover everything. The first thing I would say is take care of yourself, right? Don't get overwhelmed. Try not to be good at everything because nobody is. So as you prioritize, try to pick up something that you like and that you can be excellent at, and just just follow that path. As as we check people's websites and, as, and social uh, media, you see that uh, this person is good at this, this person is good at that, and the other one is good at that. So you get the feeling that everybody's good at everything, but that's not true. We tend to showcase those things that we are best at, look critically at what other people do, and you'll see that they're good at one thing, but not at everything in public health. There are so many career options. And as I look around and as, and as people ask me what I do for work, they're disappointed at times that I don't do the things that match their views of an epidemiologist. They feel that I'm in the field collecting samples and that I can give them the latest numbers on incidence of disease. And that's not my field, but that's just, just for you to see that the field of public health is very rich. I think it's an amazing time to be a public health professional in whatever field you are, because now we, we are getting the recognition because our work is valuable. We know this, right? but perhaps other people didn't and now for instance my parents know what I do for the first time in a lifetime right they never understood what I did now they know pursue those areas of interest and just realize that you cannot be good at everything nobody is
1: thank you so much for chatting today it was really great to get to know you hear your experiences I think NYU students and alums have a lot to learn from you and your experiences and advice that you shared today so
0: thanks again this was great If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Haley Garofalo with episode guest Hector Pardo Hernandez. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresberg, Danielle Crystal, Diana Mendez, Joseph Mercadante, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.